Hello. Welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Justin Ritzinger about his recent book, Anarchy in the Pure Land, Reinventing the Cult of Maitreya in Modern Chinese Buddhism, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. In this book, Ritz... Hello. Welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Justin Ritzinger about his recent book, Anarchy in the Pure Land, Reinventing the Cult of Maitreya in Modern Chinese Buddhism, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. In this book, Ritzinger examines the cult of Maitreya as developed during the Republican period by the Chinese monk Taishu and his circle. Drawing on previously unexamined sources, including contemporaneous anarchist periodicals, Ritzinger begins the book by arguing that Taishu was deeply involved in radical political circles during his formative years, far more so than has previously been appreciated. Here we learn not only about the tumult of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but also about the salient feature of those radical and utopian social theories that the young Taishu found so attractive. These features included a progressive view of history, utopianism, and a rejection of the social hierarchy. In the second part of the book, Ritzinger turns his attention to Taishu's beliefs about Maitreya and to the history of the Maitreya school, which Taishu founded in 1924. The central argument here is that the values and ideas that Taishu developed during his previous years as a politically active radical profoundly influenced both his attraction to Maitreya as well as his interpretation of key Maitreya-centered texts and Yogacara writings. Drawing on the work of Charles Taylor, Ritzinger argues that Taishu's theories about Maitreya were born from a tension between two moral frameworks and two concomitant visions of the good. The radical framework, with its ultimate good of the perfect utopian society, and the Buddhist framework, with its highest good being Buddhahood. In Taishu's Maitreya devotion, we find a monk guided by two stars, a pious man discovering new possibilities in the Buddhist tradition by reading it in light of the new values that he had come to so cherish during his previous involvement with anarchism and socialism. In the final part of the book, Ritzinger addresses the reasons for the Maitreya school's decline after the end of the Second World War and discusses discusses its lasting legacy in contemporary Taiwan and China. In the interview, we barely scratched the surface, and the book includes fascinating forays into the Maitreya school's sometimes antagonistic relationship with proponents of Pure Land Buddhism, into Taishu's incorporation of Tibetan Buddhist elements into his own thought and practice, and into much, much more. Listeners will have to go and read the book for themselves to appreciate it in all its detail. But our brief conversation will make it clear that this work will be of great value to those interested in modern Chinese Buddhism, Buddhist reform movements, the Maitreya cult and Yogacara in late Qing and Republican China, and the relationship between socialist theory and religion. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Justin Ritzinger, and we're going to be talking about his recent book, Anarchy in the Pure Land, Reinventing the Cult of Maitreya in Modern Chinese Buddhism, published this year, 2017, by Oxford University Press. Justin Ritzinger is Assistant Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Miami. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me. So I want to begin, as we always do, by asking how you came to the study of religion, of Buddhism, of China. So I saw uh, The Power of Myth with Joseph Campbell on TV when I was around 12 years old. Uh, And that kind of opened up the study of religion as a thing that someone could do with their life. Um, I was always kind of interested in ideas. And so here you have these kind of big, profound ideas Uh, but also myth and image and poetry and a kind of real traction in people's ordinary lives. Uh, And so I decided that that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, And then I just kind of read whatever I could find in those pre-Amazon days. And (laughs) I was really interested in Buddhism, and that just kind of became uh, my focus from there. Uh, And then when I went to college, uh, I discovered that I needed to learn an Asian language, and Chinese was the one that we had. And so I started working on Chinese and just kind of fell in love with the language. Uh, and of course, 
right? Joseph Campbell's kind of Eliadian thing is not at all what I do anymore, uh, as I hope is clear from the book. Yeah. Uh, but it was an important entree to the field for me. Great. So, and more specifically, how did you come to focus on the topic of this book? And that's namely the cult of Maitreya and modern Chinese Buddhism mm -hmm. and the sort of um, the Republican period figure of Taishu. Mm -hmm. So I had written my, my undergrad honors thesis on Taishu. Um, and when I was doing the, the undergrad thesis, I was mostly working in English language materials um, but I did work in some Chinese materials as well. And I had sort of written kind of a standard, um, right, this is how Chinese Buddhism came to be modernized and uh, demythologized and made ethically relevant, uh, socially engaged, this sort of thing. Uh, but when I was reading one of the um, sort of brief biographies that one of Tai Shu's students had written about him, one of the things that uh, the student said was, Oh, and of course, the master practiced Maitreya Pure Land, and he went off on several week-long solitary um, Maitreyan retreats. And when he died, he sought to be reborn in Maitreya's Tushita Paradise. And of course, this was exactly the sort of thing that uh, I was saying he shouldn't be doing. <laughs> right? This is not this is not what modern Buddhism is supposed to look like, and yet here it was. Uh, so I had this kind of nagging suspicion that I was wrong. Uh, and so when it came time to start looking more seriously into what my dissertation would be, that was a topic that presented itself. And so it, the book emerged from the dissertation from there. I see. So some listeners might not be familiar with the figures and time period about which we're speaking. So I just want to note that Taichu was a Buddhist monk whose dates are 1190 to 1947 and he and um, he's usually thought of as one of the main proponents of Buddhist reform during the Republican period. The Republican period being twelve, uh, nineteen twelve to nineteen forty nine, and begins with the fall of the Qing and then ends with the establishment of the Communist People's Republic of China. And then finally, of course, most listeners will know Maitreya as the future Buddha. In the introduction to the book, you note that most scholars have approached Taishu using what you call a push model of modernity. And this is a model that assumes that Buddhism has to transform in response to or in reaction to modernity. The result, or so the theory goes, is a Buddhism that is rational, socially beneficial, demythologized, and deritualized. And Taishu is usually portrayed as a proponent of precisely this sort of Buddhism. However, you point out that Taishu's interest in and promotion of the Maitreya cult suggests that there's more going on here, and you argue that uh, we understand Taishu more accurately if we emphasize not the push of modernity, but rather the pull of modernity. So with all that, my question is, what are the differences between these two models, this pull of modernity model and then this push of modernity model, and why is the second a better tool for understanding Taishu? Mm -hmm. So... Push models basically come out of right Weber's thought and uh, and uh, secularization theory, and you also find more recent kind of postcolonial, postmodern, postmodern uh, models where they look at uh, modernity as more of an ideology. But the basic idea tends to be that there is something that is uh, antithetical to religion about modernity, or at least modernity is. Uh, uncomfortable for religion or modernity has as a kind of ideological stance and kind of anti-religious stance. And thus there is kind of pressure on religion to change in the modern period. Um, very often this is phrased in a kind of biological metaphor where, right, the environment changes. Uh, you have the sort of environmental cataclysm of modernity and then Buddhism is the is the, uh, the organism that has to evolve accordingly. And the basic vision of how this uh, evolution is going to take place, the sort of end point of this evolution, ends up looking a lot like kind of liberal Protestantism. Mm -hmm. right? So Protestant Buddhism was a very famous idea in this vein, uh, and then there are sort of other versions. And I don't want to say that there's nothing to these uh, or that there's not value in uh, looking at modernity from kind of a push point of view, because clearly there are uh, forces that 
compel a certain degree of change, right? The rise of modern nation state, uh, imperialism, uh, the rise of uh, modern capitalism, right? These are huge changes that compel some kind of response. So I don't want to say that that's not happening. I just want to say that that's not the whole story, mm. right? Because monks are not monkeys, right? <laughs> a monkey, right? Monkeys have to uh, evolve because you can't stop being a monkey, right? Uh, you have to basically adapt uh, as a species or die, but you can stop being a monk. You can stop being a Buddhist. And in fact, you know, for those of us who are householders, it would seem easier to stop being a monk, right? You yeah. give up the robes, you give up all the restrictive rules, you find a nice girl and you right, open up a shop in Shanghai or something. But there's something that makes these people continue to want to be Buddhist uh, and also to want to be modern. You look at somebody like Taishu and he, he doesn't seem forced, right? He's really gung-ho. He wants to be modern. There's something about it that's good, right? That he wants to be a part of. So when I look at, try to counterbalance uh, these sort of push models with a pull model, I'm looking at uh, right, what in studies of Chinese literature has sometimes been called the lure of modernity. There's something that's attractive mm. uh, that people want to be a part of uh, in modernity. And so to look at the cult of Maitreya, I try to develop uh, a kind of theorization of how alternative modernities are formulated or what part of what's happening, uh, at least in the formulation of alternative modernities, by drawing on Charles Taylor. Basically, what I take from Charles Taylor is this idea that modernities are a cultural constellation that are powered in part uh, by a positive vision of the good. Uh, and he looks at Western modernity and tries to kind of uh, excavate the underlying uh, sources of the modern self and Western modernity's vision of what's good, right? What's a life worth living? What's a world worth having? Uh, and he sees sort of three basic moral frameworks, uh, the Judeo-Christian theistic framework, uh, a framework deriving from enlightenment rationality and one deriving from romantic expressivism. Right, so, and these emerge through a complex and additive process. And so, what I want to do is sort of look at the way that that process might occur in China, right? Where you have uh, sort of indigenous moral frameworks, indigenous ideas about what's most good, what's most important, and then you have these new ideas coming in, these new moral traditions coming in uh, with an alternative vision, and people like Kaishu. Uh, or Lu Xun or Mao Zedong or any number of people who are really moved by both, right? Who are moved by these new values and are oriented by these new values and have to find a way of thinking about the world and living in the world uh, that does justice to both. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that idea, actually, when we talk about uh, Taishu's sort of thinking about Maitreya in the third and fourth chapter. But going on to the first two chapters, in this part of the book, you look at Taishu's early involvement with radical politics, and you discuss the way in which this involvement shapes or shaped his thinking even after he left these movements behind. So there's an incredible amount of detail here, and we'll barely touch the surface. Um, but Taishu was born in 1890, and you point out that he grew up in this rather tumultuous time. China had already had the Opium Wars and the Taiping Rebellion in the middle of the 19th century. Um, and then as Taishu was coming of age the Qing dynasties on its last legs. And you note that he was influenced by the political and social movements of his day and by leading intellectuals, religious leaders, and revolutionaries. Um, so there's too much to cover here, obviously, in the brief span of this interview, but I was wondering if you could begin by noting the influence that uh, Kang Yue had on him. Mm -hmm. uh, so Taishu uh, comes from this sort of lower middle class background, uh, and he ends up receiving what's basically the the best of the Buddhist heartland educational system, uh, that system's training. So he starts off as a very uh, serious monk, but then he encounters uh, the sort of new thought of Kang Yue, of Tan Tong, that tries to begin to think about um, China's place in the modern world, 
uh, you start to get uh, this kind of utopian thinking uh, that Kanye Wei refracts through uh, Confucianism and through the idea of Datong, right, or the grand, the grand unity. So in Kanye Wei's vision, you have a progressive uh, sort of metahistorical process that will end in a world without any divisions, right? So the grand unity in terms of no divisions between races, between countries, uh, any of that kind of stuff. And this vision of a perfected world that he first encounters with Kanye Wei and Tatsu Tong uh, really starts to take hold of him. I think one of the things that's really important to remember uh, about Taishu in this period uh, and in his later radical period is just how young he is, right? I mean, he's 18 years old, 19 years old when he encounters these ideas, and he's very excited, right? Uh, he's sort of moved by these new possibilities. I think one of the things that... Uh, we can easily lose sight of uh, as early 20th century or 21st century people looking at the early 20th century is how much possibility uh, there seemed to be to build a better world at that point. Mm. Um, I think in our jaded, um, our jaded 2017, in a lot of ways that near past uh, is really rather foreign. And I think for him, I mean, people like Kanye Wei and uh, the early Chinese anarchists thought they had it figured out. So it was this moment of crisis, but also this moment of tremendous possibility when anything seemed to be possible, right? And seemingly everybody in China thought that they knew the idea that was going to bring about utopia. Mm. One of the main arguments um, and something you show through a great amount of evidence um, in the first part of the book, is that Taishu was far more deeply involved in radical movements than has previously been thought. But you point out that he downplays this in his later writings and in his autobiography. Mm -hmm. So why the, why this change? Why this minimization or de-emphasis on his early involvement later in his life? Well, so later in his life, uh, he's in a very different place, and China is in a very different place. So Right uh, after the revolution, there's this moment, the 1911 revolution. There's this moment where it really seems like anything is possible, uh, and then uh, Yuan Shikai comes to power. Uh, you sort of have this return of authoritarianism. There's a second revolution uh, that tries to throw this off that fails catastrophically, uh, and all of Taishu's sort of projects and plans uh, just disappear. So he becomes very disillusioned. Uh, with that, he becomes very disillusioned with anarchism as a kind of explicit ideology uh, because of World War I uh, and anarchism's role in that. And when he sort of returns to more active life, things have changed a great deal. Uh, when he's writing the, his autobiography uh, in the 1930s and the 1940s, right, the nationalists have come to power, uh, right, it's more of a right wing, more of a right-wing movement, and Taishu is very politically connected with the nationalists. So when he tells his story of his past, he plays up connections to uh, the Tongmenghui, the Revolutionary Alliance, to which uh, the nationalists, or from which the nationalists derive their descent. And he downplays the anarchists because the anarchists have been purged uh, from the Nationalist Party at this point, uh, and a lot of and the sort of political left wing has been taken over by the communists and Taishu finds their ideas antithetical uh, as do the nationalists. Right. So that's no longer, it's no longer part of the story that he wants to tell. Mm -hmm. Right. So, right. And I should point out to listeners that this ties into your, um, we won't go into it, but um, your observation that previous scholarship hasn't really taken full account of the influence that this early part of his life had on his later sort of Buddhist theological thinking, so to speak. So, so basically you give us this very nice uh, description of the activities that he's involved in between 1908 and 1914, very radical, involved in sort of anarchist movements and such. And then after 1914, um, after about six years' involvement with these movements, he, he secludes himself. Um, mm -hmm. And you sort of mentioned some of the reasons of uh, why he did so. So... Chapter one focuses on Taishu's activities 
during this six-year period, um, while the second chapter focuses on the way in which that period influenced his, influenced his thinking. And in particular, you claim that his writings from the early Republican period exhibit something of a tension um, between two frameworks. And you write, mm-hmm. quote, Taishu was drawn by two different visions of the good, oriented by two different moral frameworks, one drawn from radical traditions and centered on the ideal of a perfected society, the hyper-good of utopia, and the other drawn from Buddhist traditions and centered on the ideal of a perfected self, the hyper-good of Buddhahood. So what do you mean exactly by this tension? And I should mention this, uh, listeners, or for me, this was one of the most fascinating uh, things in the book was the sort of tension that actually um, then continues on with his uh, later, my, my train thought. But what, yeah, what, so yeah, what exactly in, is this tension and what are these two frameworks? Yeah, so in Taishu's, right, so the, the two basic frameworks are those that he derives from from Buddhism, right? So centered on the ideal of Buddhahood, right? And Buddhahood serves as what uh, Taylor calls a hyper good, right? So a good that not only is the highest good, but also tells you what, why, what other goods are valuable and why they're valuable, right? So things like the Bodhisattva path uh, sort of derive their goodness and effect from their, its relationship to the idea of Buddhahood, mm. right? And from the anarchist tradition, he, drives this idea of utopia, right, of Datong, uh, and a perfected world uh, where everyone is has a life of fulfillment. And in this early period, again, he's 18, 19, right, uh, early 20s when he's writing these things, and they're kind of a hot mess uh, because he has these two uh influences that have really moved him powerfully, but he doesn't yet have uh, the wherewithal to reconcile them. So what you sort of see over the series of radical essays that he's writing for uh, for socialist and then uh, more explicitly anarchist journals is him kind of trying out uh, different articulations of what utopia should be like, uh, how do we get to utopia? What sort of understandings make utopia possible? And it's this sort of shifting and always kind of unstable uh, constellations because he's not, he doesn't have enough uh, depth really in either tradition to articulate a vision that will hold together. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can sort of identify all these different points where what he's saying doesn't quite hold together or there's a great deal of tension between some of the things that he's deriving from Buddhism uh, or some of the things that he's deriving from anarchism or where he's sort of drawing things out uh, from one tradition or another and seeing them in this kind of very different way. Uh, So in one of these essays, he talks about, you know, the ancient uh, sort of what used to be slander against Buddhism, that Buddhism destroys the family and destroys the state. Right, but of course, from an anarchist point of view, I mean, this gets a fist pump. This is great. Yes, destroy the family, destroy the state. That's the source of all our problems. Mm-hmm. Right. So that something about Buddhism that used to be problematic and devalued suddenly becomes valorized uh, because it's being seen in relation to this new concept of utopia, which he's understanding in kind of an anarchist way. Mm-hmm. I want to m- uh, move on to the uh, second part of the book, chapters three and four now. And here mm-hmm. you turn to the topic of Maitreya. In Chapter 3, you outline the history of the Maitreya school from its inception in the 1920s to its peak around 1936-37, while in Chapter 4, you explore Taishu's own thinking about Maitreya. So, Taishu founded the Maitreya school in 1924, and you note that Maitreya's importance within Chinese Buddhism was, or has been, historically uh, far less than that of certain other Buddhism bodhisattvas. So why exactly was Taishu attracted to Maitreya? And specifically, what's the historical or intellectual historical context in which mm-hmm. Maitreya w- could, would become um, a prominent focus of devotion? I think the most important factor uh, or important precondition for this, for the kind of rediscovery of Maitreya that he has is the boom in Yogacara studies uh, that starts at the end of the Qing dynasty. 
Uh, so Yogacara had been um, right a great deal. Several important texts uh, had been lost uh, in the Tang Dynasty, and then in the Qing Dynasty, they start to be reimported from Japan, uh, which leads to this to renaissance in the study of of Yogacara. And one of the texts in particular that is uh, important for this is the uh, Yogacara Bhumishastra. Uh, it was very important to Zhang Taiyan, uh, who Taishu greatly admired during his uh, during his radical period and also afterwards. And so, and Maitreya was seen as being the author of this text, right? So there's a great deal of interest in Yogacara and in Maitreyan texts, and this sort of brought uh, Maitreya into uh, into elite discourse in a way that he hadn't really been before. Right. Um, most other people in the spirit who are looking at or who are involved in Yogacara are not necessarily devotees of Maitreya, but Maitreya had a new currency. Uh, and I think it was first through the Yogacara Bhumishastra that this starts to come into uh, Taishu's awareness. Right, He begins to read this more heavily uh, during his period of retreat. And I suspect that he gets to Maitreya as an object of devotion and Maitreya's uh, Tushita Heaven as a possible uh, destination rebirth through the lives of Xuanzang and Kuiji. Uh, I think that there's sort of a hagiographic connection uh, that brings him to that, although that's not quite as clear. Mm-hmm. You sort of divide the school of the history of the school of Ma- the Maitreya school into two parts, and during the first part, it was um, largely limited to a small group of people and to these seminaries that Taishu founded. Now, around 1927, Taishu began to expand the school, and it was also after 1927 that he developed this idea central to his thinking, that of human life Buddhism. I I wanted to ask you to touch on a few of the um, ways in which the school develops between 1927 and 1937. And one of the things I was particularly interested in asking you about was the way in which Taishu's school positioned Maitreya devotion as an alternative to, and sometimes as a superior alternative to, exclusive mm-hmm. devotion to Amitabha um, and the hope to be reborn in Amitabha's pure land. Pure land. You mentioned that mm-hmm. there was sometimes this tension between Taishu's school and advocates of practices focused on Amitabha. So could you expand on this tension um, and what its institutional and doctrinal significance was? Sure. Um, so just to kind of backtrack a little bit. So in that mm-hmm. first period, Maitreya school is kind of a subset of Yogacara that's mostly uh, important in Taishu's seminaries. And then in the latter period, you start to get this kind of more expansive view uh, for various reasons where other aspects of um, Maitreya start to come to the fore, right? The Yogacara aspects become less important, uh, and the idea of Maitreya as the future Buddha, uh, Maitreya as the heir to Shakyamuni, uh, Maitreya as the Lord of Tushita, really start to come to the fore. Uh, and so with that, uh, Pure Land aspects, which had always been there, right? So from the beginning in the seminaries, uh, his students were reciting the Sutra of Maitreya's Ascent, uh, they were vowing to be reborn in Maitreya's Tushita Paradise, which they refer to as a pure land, uh, which is not, right? So there are good sort of textual reasons to think of it as a pure land, right? Because it does offer uh, the promise of non-retrogression. Mm-hmm. But no one that I can find uh, prior to this in Chinese Buddhist history had ever actually called it a pure land. Yeah. But clearly from the beginning, they're treating it as an alternative pure land, and they start to promote it that way uh, more more explicitly, uh, more assertively as, as that second period uh, gets going. I think partly tied to, uh, to propagation, uh, there is a new move to sort of ritualize this, and it brings them into some degree of tension with advocates of Amitabha Pure Land. There's not a lot, um, at least not that's explicit and in print, but you do find some cases where uh, these ideas are being 
uh, attacked or criticized uh, Fan Gunong, who was a very important uh, lay Buddhist, writes this um, book review of kind of heterodox book that was influenced by Maitreya or by Taishu's Maitreyan ideas. And he seems to be using it as a vehicle to criticize some of Taishu's ideas as well uh, without criticizing Taishu by name. Uh, so it seems to have been an opportunity to sort of less directly uh, criticize some of these ideas. And Taishu felt compelled uh, to respond to them in part as a criticism of his ideas. So I think there's, I think it was read that way as well. Mm. I, I also found this idea very interesting that whereas in, to be reborn with, in Amitabha's pure land, it's sort of based on kind of faith or chanting his name, mm-hmm. and, you know, being in the right place, with, or not being in the right place, but uh, based on certain deathbed rituals, whereas to be reborn into Tushida, um, you had to sort of behave ethically. So a sort of rebirth based on proper ethics as opposed to rebirth based on faith, I suppose. Yeah, so Taishu codified uh, what he called the three superiorities uh, or three excellences of of the Tushita Pure Land. And right, one of them is that you earn rebirth uh, primarily through ethical action, right? By observing the precepts, by engaging uh, in the ten virtuous deeds, right? That kind of moral action, and as he reads it, particularly moral action within a worldly context, is what allows you to be reborn in Maitreya's Pure Land, right? And Maitreya's Pure Land is within the Sahaloka, right? It's within the realm of desire, so it's also very close, uh, and thus they want to say easier, right? Sometimes mm. they'll say, well, you know, to get to uh, Amitabha's Pure Land, you have to have Samadhi, right? But you don't have to have Samadhi to reach uh, the Tushita Pure Land because it's within the Sahaloka, it's within the realm of desire. Yeah. You mentioned that during this decade, uh, 1927-1937, there was also sometimes a tension or competition between Taishu's Maitreya school and that segment of Chinese Buddhism increasingly interested in Japanese and then later Tibetan esoteric or tantric Buddhism. In this case, Taishu's Maitreya school also took advantage of this interest and incorporated certain elements of tantric Buddhism I was wondering if you could expand upon that. How exactly um, did it incorporate these elements, and um, what was this rise in Chinese interest in esoteric Buddhism? Mm-hmm. So there, there are these waves of interest in uh, uh, first Japanese and then later uh, more Tibetan forms of Tantric Buddhism in in China, in the Republic. And Taishu sort of always has his fingers in every pot, uh, whatever's going on, uh, whatever is sort of the next new thing. Taishu is trying to, uh, incorporate that into his movement. He has very kind of universalistic, uh, ambitions, but also orientations toward the Dharma. So one of the things that happens in the second period is this idea comes to the fore that since Maitreya is, uh, the future Buddha, he's the heir to Shakyamuni. And of course, all Buddhists teach the same thing, mm. right? Therefore, there's a sense in which all forms of Buddhism, all Buddhist teachings, all Buddhist scriptures are in the broadest, the broadest sense, Maitreyan scriptures and Maitreyan teachings. So rather than Maitreya school being just one more school, it's in fact this kind of super school or meta school that includes within it all forms of Buddhism. Uh, and so that allows him to sort of make this move that incorporates certain things from, from, um, from Tibetan Buddhism uh, or from uh, Japanese esoteric Buddhism uh, within uh, the school and allows him to um, sort of build off of some of the interest that's already there in my, about Maitreya um, because of interest in Tibetan Buddhism. So, the Yoga Bodhisattva Pradimoksha, uh, right? The precepts chapter from the uh, Yoga Charabhumi Shastra, right? Those precepts 
are very important in Tibetan Buddhism and are kind of a precondition uh, for a lot of uh, empowerments in Tibetan Buddhism. So there were quite a number of people in China in that period who wanted to receive these precepts. Mm-hmm. And so that gave him an opportunity to uh, promote his own vision of Maitreya as well, because there was this kind of pre-existing interest in uh, these forms. But sometimes he had to push back against them at the same time, because, for instance, uh, someone wrote to him talking about how well, all of their friends uh, told him that he should really be doing tantric practices because they're much faster uh, rather than these kind of exoteric uh, Yogacara-inflected um, Maitreyan practices that he had been doing. Mm-hmm. Right, so Taishi has to sort of push back against claims of tantric superiority uh, while also sort of incorporating certain elements of it uh, within uh, his vision of the Maitreya school. And this is also an area where his students start to become much more important, right? So mm-hmm. at the beginning, this is very much the Taishu show, but by the time you get to 1937, his students have really started to take a much larger role. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Fadzun is, you know, doing translations that are related to this. Um, and they're starting to flesh out his ideas and build on the themes that he's laid out. But it's not quite so uh, centered on Taishu as it had been at the outset. So at the center of Taishu's Maitreya school were three texts. And in chapter four, you discuss all three in great detail. Um, and this is very much a part where uh, listeners will have to read the book to get all the rich detail because it's a, it's a lot of textual analysis, fascinating, but not really uh, able to be communicated in an interview. So, but here I just wanted to ask you to discuss the way in which Taishu's interpretation of these texts is pervaded by values that he developed during his days as a young r- radical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Part of what I'm uh, arguing in the book is that after this kind of immersion in radicalism, this immersion in uh, anarchism, when he then goes back to uh, the Buddhist tradition and starts to say the Buddhist tradition in a more uh, profound way in his period of seclusion, he's sort of seeing it through new eyes, right? He's interpreting it through uh, this new value framework that he derives from anarchism, um, right? One way that I sort of talk about some of these uh, these sort of issues with my students is that there's a kind of algebraic logic of presumed consistency, right? So this idea of utopia is good and true and Buddhism is good and true. And so you just kind of have to figure out how to balance the equation to show that the two things are the same, um, right? He's not, it's not something that's happening explicitly uh, in his thought. He's not saying, I am now going to create an anarchist Buddhism. It's more just that this idea of utopia and certain ways of thinking about it, uh, certain visions of what's most good and most true, never really leave him, although he leaves anarchism. So when he goes to these Maitreyan texts, I think what attracts him is that he sees in them analogs of ideas about science, uh, ideas about revolution, uh, ideas about um, utopia, right, about morality, that have resonances with uh, the anarchist moral framework. And partly, he's not wrong. There are certain places where these texts do kind of rhyme uh, with ideas that he's got from anarchism. But so what I'm trying to do in uh, chapter four, in part, is to play between the root texts and his commentary and show the ways in which uh, these places that do sort of on their own have a degree of resonance with anarchist ideas, how he amplifies them in his commentary, right? How he draws them out, makes them larger, or how he finds commonalities where you or I probably would not, right? He sort of invents them uh, in some cases, in those places where you can see his commentary stretching uh, and sort of going through these uh, hermeneutic gymnastics to try to see the ideas of the text in this way, I think is where you can really see that uh, he is, in fact, coming at these texts uh, from this angle. So when he looks at the uh, the chapter on knowing reality, 
uh, from the, the Yogacara Bhumi, uh, he sees this as a kind of super science, right? It operates by removing error, uh, and which was an important way that he understood science to work. And it also creates this comprehensive system, right? A comprehensive system for understanding all dharmas in their totality. Uh, and he, when you read the commentary, you see him really trying to amplify this totality aspect by kind of throwing all of these unnecessary uh, categorizations into his uh, into his commentary that don't really add that much to the understanding of the root text, but he wants to amplify that sort of comprehensiveness uh, to the text, right? Or he reads it in terms of, or he reads a sort of heroic image of the Bodhisattva as being an almost um, an activist figure, right? A revolutionary figure. Uh, mm-hmm. The Yogacara uh, Bodhisattva Pradimoksha provides a kind of revolutionary ethic. And then the uh, the Sutra Maitreya's Ascent, right? The third uh, of his three essential uh, texts of the Maitreya school offers, I think, in the early period, a kind of insurance policy, right? Because if you were reborn in Maitreya's uh, Tushita Paradise, then you will attain non-retrogression, right? And he has, uh, I think, at least a degree of the traditional soteriological anxiety uh, of Chinese Buddhism that, well, maybe you haven't quite reached the stage on the path that you hope you have, and you might backslide, right? And so I think for an activist monk like Taishu, this was tied up with the kind of career that he chosen, right? Where he's involved in right, social work, he's encouraging his students to be involved in social work, and he's not doing the kind of deep meditation or deep uh, study of sutras that he himself had done when he was young. So he has an essay where he talks about his religious experiences, and they're all when he's a very young man, right? He has three kind of awakening experiences when he's a young man, and then never afterwards. So I think there's a sense in which he felt he had reached his spiritual peak, at least uh, from a certain point of view, by the time he was 25, mm. right? So he needed a kind of uh, insurance policy, uh, his students needed kind of insurance policy to ensure that they would still make it to Buddhahood, right? That, that, uh, right, that other hyper good, uh, would still be serviced mm. at the same time that they're acting in the world. So you can act in the world and that still contributes to your Buddhahood, right? It earns you, uh, your entrance into Maitreya's Pure Land. And then in the second period, it starts to become yoked to utopianism in a more uh, eschatological way than it was before. So he ties it to his notion of uh, the pure land on earth and Maitreya's future paradise becomes the ultimate fulfillment of that pure land on earth. So it's a kind of two for one pure land. Mm -hmm. And so you engage in this ethical work in the world that, on the one hand, earns you rebirth in the Tushita paradise, uh, but at the same time, it purifies this world through this kind of progressive moral transformation of individuals that builds out, right? Everybody gradually uh, purifies themselves, purifies others, and this ultimately creates a pure land on earth. Hmm. And once that happens, right, that stimulates, right, ganying, right, that gans, Maitreya, to descend. So, in fact, you earn rebirth in his pure land in Tushita, and you help to create his future pure land on Earth. So, mm-hmm. you get to have your cake and eat it too, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have that kind of right that problem that tends to afflict utopian movements, where you're making these huge sacrifices for a perfect world that you will probably never see. Mm-hmm. Right? You're reborn in his pure land in Tushita, and then you descend with him. Uh, to the pure land on earth, right? Yeah. So you get to have both pure lands, right? And this vision of a kind of progressive uh, progressive transformation of the world, of course, is very different than the cyclical version that you have in like the Abhidha Markosha, right. right? So this kind of bottom-up, progressive, gradual transformation of the world through non-coercive means is very anarchist uh, and not very like uh, what we see in traditional Maitreyan eschatology at all. Yeah. No, great. That's really fascinating. In the interest of time, I want to move forward and to the final two chapters where you, in which you discuss 
first the decline of the Maitreya school and then its more recent revival. So what exactly happened to the Maitreya school after 1937? Well, for one thing, history happened. Uh, so you have uh, the onset of World War II, uh, which made uh, the propagation of the school uh, very difficult. Taishu and his students uh, were very involved uh, in the war effort in various ways, um, primarily non-combatant ways, but they were involved in raising funds. Uh, Taishu was involved in diplomatic efforts. Uh, there just wasn't very many resources uh, with which to pursue this. Some of his students got caught uh, on the other side of the Japanese lines after the Japanese invaded, and so nothing really could take place during World War II. Uh, then Taishu dies in 1947, and even though his students had become progressively more important over time, he was still very much uh, the most important driver of the movement. There was nobody else who had quite the same stature or quite the same interest in moving it forward. Uh, then the Communist Revolution happens, right? also makes things very difficult. Uh, there's at least one text that tries to sort of rearticulate this in a more uh, communist-friendly package, but nothing is heard of this afterwards. Mm. Uh, so it's unlikely that anything is happening in the PRC uh, in the early years. And then those who retreat to Taiwan, right? many of Taishu's students uh, die uh, during this early period. Yinshun, of course, uh, survives and goes on to become a figure of towering importance. But his take on Taishu's legacy is rather different, right? Yinshun has this tremendous debt uh, to Taishu's thought, but he reframes it in all sorts of really important ways uh, that change the way that people interact with it, uh, particularly in Taiwan, mm -hmm. uh, but also in the PRC as well, because people tend not to read Taishu directly. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, they get his ideas via Yinshun. So he's sort of Paul, right? The kind of second yeah. founder of reformist mm -hmm. Buddhism. Yeah. And he has some ambivalence uh, about Maitreya in various ways. So he uses Maitreya in some, sometimes as an exemplar of sort of the right uh, way to be a bodhisattva in the modern world. So, uh, right, Maitreya in the beginning of the Ascent Sutra, right, the Ascent Sutra is sort of begins with the question, well, how come you say that Maitreya, who looks like an ordinary monk to me, is in fact going to be the next Buddha, right? And so Yinshun uses his and him as an exemplar, right? This is what a sort of humanistic bodhisattva looks like. He's not engaged in intensive meditation. Instead, he's engaged in these worldly practices to benefit others. Um, but then he also draws on other sutras where you have this uh, sort of turtle and the hare story about Maitreya and Shakyamuni, right? Shakyamuni uh, does the bitter practices first and then does the pleasant practices of devotion uh, to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And so he attains Buddhahood much earlier than Maitreya, even though Maitreya started first, right? Because Maitreya begins with the pleasant practices, begins with the pure land kind of stuff, begins with devotion, and then only does the difficult practices later. So that, that injects this kind of ambivalence uh, about Maitreya. Uh, he takes some of the key ideas about uh, about uh, Maitreya Pure Land and diffuses it uh, into a broader theory of the Pure Land on Earth uh, or about Pure Lands and the Pure Land on Earth in his um, new, treatise on the pure, new Treatise on Pure Land. Uh, and then he also takes this kind of radical subtext uh, that's in Taishu's thought and he makes a text, right? He actually talks about uh, how uh, Uttarakuru, right, the, uh, the northern continent, which is... Uh, kind of a precursor to the Pure Lands in a lot of ways, mm. is this classless society where, right, from each according to his ability to each according to his need uh, is the order of the day, right? And he does this in 1950s Taiwan where, right, it's the white terror period, uh, mm. right? The nationalists have instituted authoritarian rule, uh, martial law. It's very insecure, and so... and. Yinshun has this position of prominence uh, at Shandao Temple, and people use this as a way to bring him down. 
Uh, right. There's an accusation made to the nationalists. Uh, there's a whisper campaign. He's ultimately driven out of his position. And I think that serves to have kind of a chilling effect on the propagation of the Maitreya school. Yeah. Uh, there's an incredible amount we haven't covered. We've only skimmed the surface. But um, as a final question, I wanted to ask, uh, now that you're uh, done with Maitreya and Taishu, or maybe you're not, uh, is there anything else you're working on now? Uh, yeah, so at the moment I am... Uh, I'm working on an article uh, examining the career of Holmes Welch. Mm. Uh, so I spent the summer working in, on his papers uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, I've been doing some oral history uh, to look at the impact of his life uh, on his work and also his sort of uh, unexpected afterlife uh, as a Chan patriarch. Uh, he's been claimed by a, uh, a couple of American lineages as a patriarch in their lineage. Wow. Uh, so I'm looking at that. Uh, and then I'm also working on an article based on my fieldwork with one of the contemporary Maitrean organizations. Uh, but it's going to look at their uh, practices regarding karma uh, and personal karmic narratives. And that might be the entree uh, into book number two, uh, looking at karma in modern Chinese Buddhism. All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. We'll look forward to um, a big fat book on that a few years down the line. So I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today and to thank our listeners. And that's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. <laughs>